I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the book of Daniel with Dr. Wendy Witter, uh, Old Testament scholar and the author of uh, Daniel, The Story of God, Bible Commentary by Zondervan, came out in 2016. Uh, follow the link below. So, Dr. Witter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. All righty. So before we get into Daniel, if you could give people just a little idea about yourself, where you're coming from in terms of your church um, and theological background. Yeah, sure. Um, I grew up in a fairly conservative Baptist church. Um, I like to say I attended there since the time my mom was five. (laughs) So I grew up in this church and my parents were part of it until they moved to assisted living recently. Um, I moved away from that place geographically 22 years ago and have never actually been back there to live. Um, I left to go to seminary and I went to seminary in conservative West Michigan, uh, Grand Rapids. And um, from there, I went on to University of Wisconsin in Madison to study Hebrew with the goal of becoming an Old Testament professor. Um, Along the way, I've attended different churches, mostly in the Baptist tradition, Um, Most recently, I am part of the Christian Reformed tradition. I married into it, and so that's where I am, and it's a place I find myself, uh, I find a good fit. So um, I grew up in a very dispensational background, so that influenced, um, if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you probably know that Daniel and dispensationalism have a special kind of relationship. Um, So I grew up in that sort of framework, and uh, that's not exactly where I am anymore, but it certainly has informed a lot of the way I have interpreted Daniel over the years and ultimately, in some ways, led me to look for another way to understand it. All righty. So um, let's uh, take a look at the uh, historical background of Daniel first. Um, the situation for the Jews um, in Babylon and then um, as the other empires took over, um, some historical background for those empires as well. Yeah, so when you come to the book of Daniel, whenever you ask a historical background question, there's sort of two sides to that. Um, There's the historical setting in which the stories take place, in which the book takes place. And for Daniel, it's set in exilic Babylon. So the Jews have just been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, um, 605 to the late uh, 500s. And they live there until they are allowed to return home in 539 BC when Cyrus the Persian issues his decree. Um, So that's the setting, the historical setting of the book. In terms of authorship of the book, it gets a little more complicated because obviously the book came together and was completed after that time in order to include all of that. Um, Daniel is an author of parts of it depending on your view of the authorship, which is, I know you're headed there, Um, not necessarily all of it. The book itself gives no claim for an author. Um, So you have the setting in which the events take place for historical setting, and then that might differ slightly from the events in which the book came together and maybe was edited in its compilation. Because most of the Old Testament books show evidence of editorial work as they reshaped it for later audiences. So both of those things are going on in Daniel. But I think in terms of the audience, whether it was the exilic audience immediately or whether it was the more diaspora, a little bit later audience, you still have a lot of the same issues. These are people who have lost uh, the underpinnings of their theological um, foundation. They have lost their land, which was part of their covenant with God. They have lost their temple which was God's presence living among them. They have lost their Davidic king. And all of those things put together really create a crisis of faith, I think, for this audience. Where is their covenant God? Where is God in their distress? Um, And the first couple verses of the book of Daniel actually set up this situation in which um, anybody on the ground without the view from God would say that Israel's God had been defeated. Um, and Babylon's, Babylon's God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, had won. 
And so the book sets that up. That's what it looks like, historically speaking. But the book says that may be what it looks like. But let me reinterpret that for you. Let me tell you what's really going on here. And what's really going on is that God gave his people into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, why did he do that? That, you know, takes you down the whole road of why they're in exile at all. Which the book does not answer until you get to chapter 9. Okay, so um, how about uh, the the genre and the structure of the book, uh, including the fact that it was uh, written in two languages? Yeah, Daniel is a really unusual book in the Old Testament for a couple reasons. Now, first of all, it has two really distinct genres. The first six chapters are narrative. They're stories, uh, the stories of Daniel and his friends in exile. The second six chapters, or the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, are what we call apocalyptic literature, or a very early kind of apocalyptic literature, which is very different. Um, It has some prophecy in it, but it's highly symbolic, and that's one of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature. The only other, well, the full-blown example of apocalyptic literature in the Bible is, of course, the book of Revelation, um, which is full of symbolism and difficult things. So that's distinct about Dan. It's got these two genres and no clear um, explanation for why it's that way. The other thing about the book of Daniel that's unique is that it is in two languages. So chapter one is in Hebrew, and then chapters two through seven are in the sister language of Aramaic. And then chapters eight through 12 are back in Hebrew. So if if you do that quick math, it's six chapters in Hebrew and six chapters in Aramaic, but there's no explanation for it. Um, What's even more unusual about it is that those Aramaic chapters, that block of chapters, uh, is in a really clear parallel structure. So chapter two, the story in chapter two and the story in chapter seven are very similar. The story in chapter three and chapter five, or sorry, Six, (laughs) they relate, and chapter four and five, they relate. So you have these parallel stories um, and and trying to sort out, well, why? It's really intentional. That's not an accidental just piecing together of stories. It's an intentional shaping of this book um, for some greater purpose. All right. And uh, moving on to dating and authorship. So there's a wide divergence between liberal and conservative scholars on this, depending on whether they believe in the the possibility of miraculous prophecy or the only belief. We can only believe, since these things actually did happen, some of them, the book must have been written after the fact. How do you see all that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that not every scholar falls in that either or category. So not every conservative scholar is going to say the entire book is prophetic. Not every liberal scholar perhaps, is going to say none of the book is prophetic. Um, there right. is there is some gray space in the middle. And part of the reason for that is we know that Old Testament books took shape over many years. There are very, well, let me back up. We don't know a lot about how the Old Testament books took shape. We No one recorded this process. Um, with the New Testament, which came together really quickly, these questions don't arise. With the Old Testament, which takes a good thousand years to come into shape, um, there's a lot of different hands involved in probably most of the biblical books. So to talk about an author of Daniel is really difficult because Daniel himself didn't necessarily write the whole thing. He does not claim to make, there's no claim for him writing the first six chapters. It's written in third person. So Daniel is a character. He never says I, Um, The reason that Daniel is traditionally thought of as the author is when you get to chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, Daniel speaks in the first person. And so he presents these visions that I have seen. But even those first person reports are nested in a larger third person narrative. So it's not as if Daniel said, hey, I'm writing this book. Okay, it's a book that includes things that Daniel saw but it doesn't necessarily mean he wrote it. Well, then, so who wrote it? I don't know. (laughs) Nobody says. Most of the Old Testament books don't say. Um, So I would say clearly some of the prophecies, I have no problem saying many of these prophecies are what we would consider true prophecies. They were spoken and then they came to pass at some point later. 
Um, the difficulty with what's often called the late date of Daniel, which would put it second century BC around the time of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. The difficulty with that is that it leaves very little time between the end of the book, say it's in 165, just pick a number, and when Daniel appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls as considered sacred, which is only about 50 years later. So that's a pretty quick turnaround mm. for um, sacred texts. Not necessarily impossible, but it's pretty quick. So in my view, that's one reason that I, I don't I don't go with the late date, at least for the composition or the final composition of it. Um, but how all those pieces came together, I'm just not willing to say. And honestly, for understanding the book, I don't think it's a critical decision to make. Uh, I know people will disagree with me on that, but I think that the theology of the book um, can stand almost apart from that. All righty. So, and if it's an early date, um, what would you imagine? Well, we know the stories are taking place. The events that happened to Daniel and his friends are taking place in the 500s. So they have to be written some point after that. Um, they're on the brink of returning to the land in 539. The visions are foreseeing life back in the land. Um, I don't think it would have come together as a final book much before 500, probably in the 400s, uh, maybe beyond that, somewhere between 539 and 2nd or 3rd century. Okay, so it's pretty broad. <laughs> it is pretty broad, and I'm okay with, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Alrighty, yeah, it's not the same as dating New Testament books by any means. No, it's really not. Alrighty, so let's move on um, to the purpose and theology of Daniel. So uh, what do you think is really going on here? Well, I think the book of Daniel, because its audience is an exilic and a diaspora audience, that is those people who have been removed from that original covenant relationship with God in their land, I think a great, and they're living among Gentile nations, and they will be primarily for the duration of their history. Um, I think one of the great purposes of the book of Daniel is to remind them that no matter how things might look, their God is in control. And more than that, their God and his kingdom are the only ones that will endure. They will surpass all human kingdoms, all human kings, no matter how powerful. And the book of Daniel is very preoccupied with one of the most powerful kings in ancient history, Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel's God shows himself to be superior to him in every possible way. So I think one of the purposes of this book is to demonstrate to God's people that their God is on the throne, he's in control, and it is only his kingdom and his people who will endure. I think on uh, the statement that Daniel's three friends um, offer up when they're about to be thrown in the fiery furnace says a lot. It's like, our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, still we will obey him and not right. submit to you. Yeah. So um, could you say a few words about that? Yeah. So in chapter three, um, one of the interesting things about chapter three is that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who poses the question that that chapter is answering. And when the three three men come before him and he says, you know, you, do you want a second try? <laughs> we'll play the music again. Let's try this again. And if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And then he says, who is the God that is able to deliver you from my hand? And he, of course, means there isn't one. Um and yeah. he's also I, setting this himself, is a rhetorical question. Yeah, right? exactly. I don't mean he's also for you to give me himself above any god. Um, so that chapter is answering that question. That it's only Daniel. It's only the God of Israel who can do that. Um, that chapter is also very concerned with idolatry. There's a lot of repetition. If you've read it aloud, um, you have heard that. If you haven't read it aloud, do it because <laughs> it's really fun, actually. But one of the phrases that is repeated over and over again is the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king set up. It's just there all over the place. Um, and so there's this, this idolatry, which for any God-fearing Jew, they're, they're not going to do that. And the amazing thing about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is even if their God wasn't able 
to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar. They still weren't going to worship some other god. So they were going to be faithful to their god no matter what, which is an amazing statement um, given how prevalent idolatry is among God's people in the Old Testament. All righty. So um, what about the character of Daniel? He seems like um, one of the few Old Testament characters uh, that actually doesn't have any dirt on him. So, and you know, so I see, and along with Nebuchadnezzar, it seems like there's a they're continually contrasted, like while Nebuchadnezzar is still in the story. Yeah, you know, there is a contrast between them, but I think that Nebuchadnezzar, in some ways, is a more is a a fuller character than Daniel is in the book. So. When you read Nebuchadnezzar is in chapter one, where he's more of an agent than anything else. But then in chapters two, three and four, Nebuchadnezzar is very involved in the story of his dream of the statue, the fiery furnace, and then his dream about the tree. And then he even actually appears in chapter five um, with Belshazzar as a point of contrast. So in my view, Nebuchadnezzar is almost more important than Daniel in this book. Nebuchadnezzar, you see his emotions, you see his motives, you you see this fully fledged character. Daniel, not so much. Daniel, he he acts, he he prays. Um, you don't ever hear what Daniel thinks. Um, you don't ever hear what Daniel feels. Hmm. Um, when you get to chapter six in the lion's den, that's really the place Daniel gets the most attention with respect to those things. But Nebuchadnezzar is a fascinating character. And I think one of the purposes for this book and for showcasing Nebuchadnezzar is just think about who he is. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. What is Babylon in the Old Testament and in the Bible? Babylon is a metaphor really for any for the opposition to God, right? It's mm-hmm. the empire opposed to God. Um, it, it appears in the book of Revelation, Babylon, fallen has Babylon, this this opposition to God, this great oppose, opponent of God. Who is the quintessential king of Babylon? Well, it's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and in the Old Testament especially, it's Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is this paradigm of a Gentile king and a Gentile king in opposition to God. And in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar encounters the God of Israel Three times, face, not face to face, but really up close and personal. So in chapter two, he gets this dream that terrifies him. In chapter three, the fiery furnace, he sees this, he sees a fourth man in the furnace. And he may have been the only one who saw that fourth man. The text really doesn't say. We know Nebuchadnezzar saw him. In chapter four, he has another terrifying dream. And in each of these chapters, Nebuchadnezzar learns something. He learns that Israel's God is superior in knowledge, in power, um, in wisdom, and and in sovereignty. He comes to the point in chapter 4 where he acknowledges the sovereignty of Israel's God. So that's by the time Nebuchadnezzar leaves the scene in biblical history, he is acknowledging the sovereignty and the supremacy of Israel's God and submitting to him. Think about that. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the quintessential Gentile king in opposition to God. But now he becomes the quintessential Gentile king for what a Gentile king ought to be, somebody who acknowledges what God has given them. When you turn the page to chapter 5 and Belshazzar enters the scene, Belshazzar is set up in that chapter and repeatedly called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So there's they're set up together, father and son. And the son should have been like his father, but he was not. He did not learn the lesson of his father. And Daniel actually indicts Nebuchadnezzar for, or Belshazzar for that. When he comes to read the handwriting on the wall, before he gets around to reading it, he lectures Belshazzar. And he says, this has happened to you because you did not learn from Nebuchadnezzar. You knew what happened to him. You knew how his pride brought him low and how he acknowledged God and you didn't learn from it. So Nebuchadnezzar 
is a, just a fascinating character to me. And um, I think the book of Daniel in part intends to show how this Gentile king becomes the model for what a Gentile king ought to be. Somebody who acknowledges what God has given him and acknowledges the sovereignty of that God over him. Well, and it also says a lot about for hope for God's people in exile. Absolutely. They may think all is lost, but here they are transforming the greatest empire in the world. And and you, you uh, mentioned to me somewhere along the way um, about chapter four being written in Nebuchadnezzar's voice. Why is that? I wrote an article about that. Um, why is Nebuchadnezzar allowed to speak for this entire chapter? And I mean, the narrator certainly could have just told the story. That's what biblical narrators usually do. But Nebuchadnezzar is the one who tells the story. And I think, in part, that is to demonstrate to God's people from the mouth of this enemy, his acknowledgement of who their God is. And so I think that's part of why he's allowed to say it, because it would have been more powerful to God's people to hear this from the king himself, um, in the voice of the king, that he acknowledges who's, is, who Israel's God is. Okay, well, let's get into more depth on some of these stories here. Um, first of all, his, so his first dream about the statue, um, and then, of course, Daniel's interpretation. Um, what are some interesting facts about this that we should know about? Well, I think one of the, I think the focus of this chapter, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue and sta- the the metals representing different kingdoms. Um, Those kingdoms are important, but what's really more important in this vision, I think, is how God showcases his superior knowledge and wisdom. Babylon's best had been paraded before the king and they could not help. They look like buffoons. They, They couldn't give the king what he wanted. Daniel comes in and he can tell the king what is actually impossible to tell somebody, what they dreamed. But he can only, and he he says that to the king too. He says, "This is not this is not what your wise men can do. People can't do this." But God has told me. Um, so, in terms of Nebuchadnezzar's education, um, he witnesses and encounters this God who is superior to any of his gods in knowledge and wisdom. In terms of the dream itself and the identity of the kingdoms, um, in some ways, I think we should take our cue from the text which is Daniel interprets the kingdoms by saying that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's a second kingdom. And then there's a third kingdom. And then there's a fourth kingdom. And then the fifth kingdom is the kingdom of God. And so Daniel does not explicitly identify the identities of those kingdoms. And I don't have a problem with talking about who they historically represented But I think if that's the focus of what we do with that chapter, we've missed it because that's not what Daniel focuses on. He focuses on Nebuchadnezzar's the head of gold and the kingdom that endures forever is the kingdom of God. When you get to chapter four and Nebuchadnezzar has his second dream about the great tree, um, his first dream comes back to haunt him because part of the purpose of that dream was of, of the statue dream and Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold was to tell him that he needed to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and that God was the one who had given him his his kingship and his dominion and his power and his glory. Um, and he didn't. And when you get to chapter four, Daniel says, God gave you all those things and you didn't acknowledge it. And so now here you are, a great tree that's about to be chopped down. The two dreams are related. Um, and I think we sometimes miss that if if we focus too much on the identity of the kingdoms. So, um, okay, but what about the identity of these kingdoms? <laughs> what, what do people, what is, what's the most common view amongst scholars? Yeah, okay, so there's two dominant views. The first, and they're, they're named for who they identify as the fourth kingdom. So there's the Greek view and the Roman view. So um, in the Greek view, Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Um, I have to get everything right here. The silver torso is the kingdom of Media. The bronze midsection is the kingdom of Persia. And then the legs are the kingdom of Greece, the Greek empire. Um, 
in terms of the Roman view, the head is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the gold head. The silver torso is the combined kingdom of Medo-Persia. The bronze midsection is uh, Greece. And then the fourth kingdom is Rome. Mm. And you really have to understand chapter two, or you have to look at it along with chapter seven, which is Daniel's vision of four beasts. Um, those are parallel chapters, and they both involve five, four human kingdoms, and then a fifth eternal kingdom. And then you also have to tie it to chapter eight, which also involves kingdoms. So it's it's kind of a and that's not kind of it's a puzzle to put all together. And and there are different there are defensible reasons for either the Greek or the Roman view, I think. Um, and it comes down to which you just find most persuasive and why. Um, I come at the book of Daniel trying to just read it as the literary piece that it is. Obviously, I, I believe it's God's word and it's theology, but I also want to let it speak as literature and see how it fits together as writing. And for me, what makes the best sense of the pieces that are there, of that puzzle, um, is the Greek view. Now, does that mean, well, for some of your listeners, that might have just set off a whole bunch of bells <laughs> that, that, you know, I'm flaming liberal. But there are conservative scholars who hold this view. I'm not the only one. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you want to ask more questions about that or... Let that stand. Okay, well, we'll get into that more with the uh, other chapters, other visions. Um, so say more about his second dream, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream, and uh, there's actual fulfillment there. Yes. Yeah, so Nebuchadnezzar's second dream is the great tree, and this is the chapter that is presented in first person. So Nebuchadnezzar is reporting this to his entire kingdom. He wants to tell them about the signs and wonders that God has done. And he reports that he had had a disturbing dream and he called in his experts. This time he told them the dream and no one could tell him what it meant. That must have been a big relief. Yeah, I'm sure that was a big relief. Yes. Um, what's interesting, though, well, there's lots of things interesting, is is that his his um, experts didn't know the meaning when a lot of it appears pretty obvious. So whether they didn't know it and didn't want to whether they had some idea and didn't want to say it or whether they really didn't know it. The text doesn't say it. it. The text, the narrator does not tell us. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who says, my experts heard the dream and they could not tell me what it meant. So finally, Daniel comes in, Daniel hears the dream and Daniel's disturbed. Um, it's really quite a shocking response that Daniel has. He's very bothered by what he hears. Um, and, and let that sink in for a second, because Nebuchadnezzar was the king who torched the holy city and destroyed the temple and we might have thought ruined Daniel's life. Um, and Daniel is upset by this dream because he knows what it means for the king. And he says to the king, would that this were for your enemies and not mm. for you. That's just amazing to me. Um, so in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees a great tree that is... A voice from or an angel from heaven orders it being chopped down and um, destroyed. And it's it, because it's a dream, the imagery mix, mixes. So you go from this tree and then suddenly there's a, a living creature and it's in the field. Um, and it's just kind of a muddle like dreams often are of imagery. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. And the purpose of the dream, which is stated three times in the chapter, the purpose of the dream is that all men may know that Israel's God is sovereign and he can humble and um, he's given dominion to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar hears it and Daniel begs him to repent. Um, if possible, then maybe it will. the dream won't come to pass. And the text doesn't tell us whether Nebuchadnezzar did, doesn't tell us what his response was. All it says is that 12 months later, so maybe he repented for a while or just sort of leaves that 12 months there for us to sort out. Um, 12 months later, he's surveying Babylon. He sees how magnificent it is. And he says, Babylon, how great. You know, it's great Babylon that I have created. And instantly the fulfillment of his dream happens. Voice from heaven comes down and Nebuchadnezzar is driven to the wilderness 
to live like a beast for seven times. Doesn't say seven years, it says seven periods of time. <laughs> Probably hmm. years, I don't know. Um, until he acknowledges uh, the sovereignty of God, which he ultimately does. And he's restored. And he's he's restored, and his kingdom is even greater than before. And some people want to say, well, then he sounds proud again. Listen to what he says. He talks about how great he is. But God gave it to him, and he says as much. He says he acknowledges who God is, and he says God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Those are his final words. So do what you want with Nebuchadnezzar, but I, I think we are supposed to take away from that a transformation in this king, that he has acknowledged um, who God is. He's doing better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, he, then he's gone from the scene, so you know we don't have to follow up on him. <laughs> this, right. is, this is the picture that remains for Nebuchadnezzar, that at the end of the day, at the end of his telling in the book, he has acknowledged who he is before God and that God is the one who gave him all that he has. All right. So um, how about uh, let's move on to uh, Darius um, becomes emperor. So uh, Medes and Persians. And uh, so there's envious satraps, right, that want to do Daniel in. And so they get the king to uh, agree to this law. Only prayer to Darius is allowed. Yeah. Th this is going to go over great with everybody, right? Right, right. But somehow they get it passed. Um, they trick him into signing it. And um, so what happens here and what's uh, theologically significant? Yeah, I think one of the points of this purposes of this chapter is to showcase the superiority of God's law. So if you read the chapter, you will find repeated reference to this man-made law. Sometimes it's called a decree, an edict, a proclamation, a declaration, all of these words, but it comes up over and over and over again, this law that they got Darius to sign. And then there's the law of Daniel's God. And his enemies know that the only way they're going to catch Daniel is, is if they can get him to violate the law of his God. So on the surface, it looks as if following this law, this human law, would result in life. And for Daniel to follow the law of his God, it's going to lead to the lion's den and death. So that's sort of the, the setup. Um, and the story turns all that on its head. Following the human law leads to death. Uh, his conspirators end up in the lion's den. But following the law of his God leads to life. And that's a theme in scripture, that God's law is life-giving. And obeying God's law, no matter the cost, leads to life. So I think that's one of the big picture things that's going on in chapter six. The other thing in chapter six is that it really does, for the first time in the book, focus on the example of Daniel. So when Daniel hears the decree, um, you get this long verse or set of verses that describe what he did. He went back to his house. He went to his window. He opened the window. He kneels. He prays toward Jerusalem as he did regularly. And it's just this, it's almost like you're following him with a camera, right? Watching his every move. Um, and there's a lot hidden in that. Well, not hidden, but there's, there's links in what it says about what Daniel's doing. He's praying with his window open toward Jerusalem. Well, why is he doing that? Well, the only place, and he's kneeling. The only other biblical characters in the Old Testament who kneel when they pray is Solomon at the dedication of the temple and Ezra on the other side of exile when he's confessing the nation's sin. Hmm. Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, part of his dedicatory prayer in First, Second Kings, I can't, it's in one of, the, it's either in First or Second Kings chapter eight. He has this long prayer in extolling God and talking about how, how they've made this temple for him. And then he says repeatedly, if your people turn from you and sin and we end up in exile, if we pray toward this place, if we pray mm. toward Jerusalem, toward this temple, hear and answer. So Daniel's prayer is linked 
his habit of prayer is linked to that event, that dedication of the temple. So even though Daniel 6 doesn't tell us what Daniel's praying, I think we can probably surmise that he's praying for restoration. He's confessing sin. He is asking for God to hear his people's prayer from exile. Um, So Daniel really is set up in this chapter as a model to be followed. All right. And uh, then Daniel has a dream. It's his turn to start having dreams and visions. And it's regarding beasts and kingdoms, of course. So um, what does this mean and how does it tie into Nebuchadnezzar's previous dream? Yeah, so Daniel has four different visions or um, some of them are called dreams. Some of them are more just revelations that are spoken to him. So there's one in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, one at the end of chapter 9, and then 10 through 12 is the final one. And Daniel doesn't understand them, which is kind of unusual. You'd think Daniel, who understood Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, would be able to understand his own dreams. But that's actually a characteristic of apocalyptic literature, that the dreams require... Um, or the visions and dreams require an angel or an angelic being to interpret it. So that's what you see in in Daniel's dreams. Um, Somebody, an angelic interpreter, tells him what it means. So Daniel dreams, his first dream, a very disturbing dream about four mutant beasts that rise up out of the sea. Um, And the, the angel tells him that those beasts represent kingdoms. Um, and one of the beasts is destroyed and the angel tells him, and this happens in bits and pieces in the chapter. Um, the angel tells him that that horrifying final kingdom will be destroyed. And then the kingdom of God, the saints will inherit the kingdom and they will rule forever. Um, the thing about chapter seven is that it presents this cosmic view of history. So yeah, you can identify the different kingdoms, But again, we're looking at this eternal kingdom. We're going beyond anything historical. And this is an eschatological vision of God's people inheriting the kingdom and reigning with him forever. Tucked in the middle of this vision is um, Daniel's glimpse of the throne room of God, in which he sees one like the, or he sees the ancient of days seated on a flaming throne Um, and his attendants around him. It's just an amazing scene. And then he sees one like a son of man come before that throne, and he is is given the kingdom. Um, And that's this cosmic view of ultimately Jesus, right? The New Testament will tie back to Daniel 7. Um, Jesus's favorite name for himself was the son of man, Um, which on one hand was a way of saying he was human, That's its most common usage in the Old Testament. But he's also making a very clear link to this vision in Daniel 7, where the one like a son of man receives the kingdom. Um, So Daniel 7 is full of encouragement. It's this cosmic view of history in which the oppressors are destroyed and God's people inherit the kingdom and rule with him forever. It's this incredibly encouraging chapter that is really important where it is, because for the next three visions, things are only going to get worse, and we're going to see more detail about how they are worse. So we need to hang on to this vision of chapter 7 and the glorious view and perspective it gives on inheriting the kingdom. So um, some people talk about these, some of these as dreams and others as visions. So can we tell from the text whether it's one or the other? I'm not sure that there's... I'm not sure it's worth parsing the difference between the two. Um, I think, I think chapter seven calls them dreams. I think, well, he was sleeping and I think it said he had dreams. I don't have it open in front of me. Um, Chapter nine doesn't even use the word vision. Gabriel comes and gives him a revelation, speaks to him. Um, Chapter 10, he has a vision of a man, um, a godlike man, which, It's a really interesting chapter. Who then speaks to him? So it's just in chapters 7 and 8 that he's dreaming or seeing things in some way, whether whether you call it a vision or a dream. I'm not sure it makes that much difference. 
Okay, so the next one uh, then is the vision of the ram and the goat. And uh, so what's going on here? How do you understand this? Yeah, chapter eight, in my view, is a really grim chapter. Um, It has hope and encouragement, but it's kind of a stingy hope. The hope that it gives is that God has evil on a leash. And no matter how bad things get, he will ultimately bring them to an end and he will be victorious. Um, Chapter eight has some language of lament in it. The angelic interpreters ask each other, how long, how long is this horrific stuff going to happen? Mm. Which recalls Psalms of lament. And um, it's related to chapter seven. It has kingdoms involved in it. But I, I think that one of the main encouragements of chapter eight is that evil no matter how bad evil gets god is still in control and he will ultimately defeat it and some days that just feels like like i said stingy hope you want a little bit more (laughs) you want you want some great victory which it's coming but chapter eight doesn't talk about that that's what chapter seven was about chapter seven is this grand picture of god's victory chapter eight there's evil. It's horrible. Um, God's people will suffer, but it will end. <laughs> so I get the impression through all these that Daniel is mostly just disturbed by these. He visions. is disturbed. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons Daniel is disturbed is you have to think about where he is when he's receiving these visions. He is in Babylon and chapter seven and eight are set during the reign of Belshazzar. And I didn't get to talk about Belshazzar. Um Belshazzar is the counterpart to Nebuchadnezzar, who sees the handwriting on the wall and in chapter five. And he's set up as a contrast, which I mentioned. So you have Nebuchadnezzar, who is the quintessential Gentile king who responds properly to God. And then you have Belshazzar, who defies God, shakes his fist at him and thumbs his nose, drinks out of his sacred goblets. And Belshazzar is destroyed. Um Belshazzar is important in the book of Daniel for several reasons, but the one I'm thinking of is is that he becomes the pattern or the paradigm for kings that stand in opposition to God. So Nebuchadnezzar has come around. Now we have Belshazzar, who is going to become a pattern. He's going to set the pattern. And the kings that come after him are increasingly worse. So in the book of Daniel, the the immediate historical figure who comes after Belshazzar in terms of what the book is looking at is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes in the second century, um, who will desecrate the temple and torture the Jews. And he becomes this horrible picture of somebody reality, somebody opposed to God. But the pattern established by Belshazzar continues beyond the book of Daniel. The new Testament picks up the idea of this man of lawlessness. And all of that, I think, is rooted in the character of Belshazzar, whose whose successors Mm. become bigger and worse than he is until you get to the ultimate man of lawlessness in the New Testament, the Antichrist. Um, So Daniel's visions, seven and eight, are set in the reign of Belshazzar, which is probably around 550-ish B.C. And Daniel has, there's another 10... 10, 15 years before the people return from exile. So Daniel's kind of, he's looking forward to this restoration. And restoration for Daniel should mean the fulfillment of what the prophets have said, that God's going to restore us and God, it's going to be great and glorious. And, you know, read some of the prophecies in Isaiah about what the restoration would be like. And so for Daniel to see these visions of his people's future back in the land, on the other side of exile as being so difficult and having so much oppression, that would be really disturbing. He's looking Mm. forward to restoration shortly. And instead he sees these visions where life is horrific for the people of God. So I think that's part of why he's so disturbed. Yeah, I would be too. All righty, so then uh, there's Daniel's confession on behalf of uh, the people of God in exile in chapter 9. What is significant here? 
this is really the chapter where Daniel most fits the label of a prophet. Um, he is interceding on behalf of the people. Uh, other, For the most part, Daniel does not look like an Old Testament prophet in terms of, of speaking prophecies to the people and um, showing signs and such to the people and delivering God's message to the people. Look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12, except for Jonah. Um, they're, they're all standing between God and the people and delivering messages and calling the people to repent. That's not what Daniel does. He is not that kind of prophet, right? He's more of a, a wise, well, he's a courtier. He works in the royal court. Um, he's a, a wise man in many ways. But in chapter nine, he is a prophet. He is interceding for God's people. And he, um, it's a, it's a beautiful prayer. Um, it's unfortunate that it usually gets more or less skipped over to get to the last part of Daniel nine, which <laughs> is the 70 weeks of Daniel. Um, Daniel's prayer is just full of covenant language and um, acknowledgement of sin and begging for mercy for God's glory, for God's sake, um, not for anything that the people have done. So I just I think it's a beautiful picture of um, standing with people, whether or not you've actually committed those sins. Daniel's confessing them. I mean, you you said what a model Daniel was, like he's squeaky clean. And yet you look at the things he's confessing, you think, well, he's not guilty of those. Well, perhaps not, but his people were. And so he is own he says, We, we have done this. We, and and he owns his people. He owns their shame and their sin. All right. And how about the, the latter part then of chapter nine? Gabriel comes on the scene. He talks about these uh, 70 weeks or 77s. Yeah, what? It's, it's a mucky section. Um, Old Testament scholar uh, Montgomery from the early 1900s in his commentary calls scholarship on the 70 weeks of Daniel, the dismal swamp of Old Testament scholarship. Um, <laughs> it, it is a mess, honestly. And I think, I think when we get stuck in the mess and trying to press the details of dates and times and identifying um, all the historical events that go along with it, I'm not opposed to trying to do some of that. But I think we lose um, a lot of the imagery that is behind what Gabriel says. So, well, first of all, Gabriel is coming to Daniel on the brink of the people's return. Chapter 9 is set in the first year of Darius. Um, we're at about 539-538. Okay? Um, so the proclamation has perhaps already been issued that the people can return to the land. Um, this is... Exile's you over! Cyrus. Yeah. Well, chapter 9 is set in the first year of Darius. So we got the Darius-Cyrus issue. Um, it, it mentions the first year of Darius. But either whoever Darius actually is, historically, we are set after Babylon has fallen. So if Babylon has fallen, the people are about to return to the land. Um, and Daniel is meditating on the prophecies of Jeremiah that specifically related to how long exile would be. And so Daniel knows what time it is. You know, he knows what's going on. He's like, well, wait, Babylon's done. Jeremiah said Babylon would be judged. Um, and they have been. And then the people would be restored. So it's got to be coming. Um, Jeremiah also said the people had to confess their sins, which is what Daniel then does. So Daniel's on the verge of restoration. Exile is almost over. And here comes Gabriel with a message that, yeah, those 70 years are over. But there's 77s <laughs> yet to come. So there's this greater exile, even, that God's people will live in until the end of time. Um, but no matter how great this initial restoration is going to be, Gabriel's message is, yeah, but the restoration on the other side of this greater exile is even bigger. And so in Daniel 77s, there is imagery from Leviticus of the year of Jubilee um, and this freedom 
And if you tie that to Jesus in the New Testament, who proclaims himself to be the Jubilee, it's just this really beautiful picture of how God is working history toward its consummation, how Jesus's coming is the one is the coming that creates restoration and the opportunity for forgiveness from real bondage, not just exilic bondage, but real bondage. Um, so it's it's we kind of lose that if we if we try to parse out all the timing of everything. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my take on the 77s. <laughs> all righty. On the other hand, the 77s wouldn't be too far from the time of Daniel to the time of Christ. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be. It it mathematically gets you pretty close. So there's probably significance to that, I think. Um, I actually think that the anointed ones in Daniel 7 are referring to um, two different priests before Jesus comes. I don't think that the anointed ones in Daniel did I say seven? Sorry, nine, the 70 weeks. I don't think it's specifically referring to Jesus, but I think there it's the pattern that Jesus then fills. Um, yeah. Okay. So then we have the big vision, 10 through 12. So, um, boy, there's a whole lot in here. So if you could summarize that and then give your theological take and answer the question, who is Michael? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, Daniel 10 through 12 is a unit. And in Daniel 10, Daniel has a vision of, uh, some people will say it's Gabriel um, or some other angelic being. I actually think it's a theophany. I think he has seen a vision of, of an appearance of God in a human form. Um, and this messenger brings to him something that's really important for him to know. And the reason we know it's really important is that this messenger left a battle that was going on in the heavenlies to come deliver this message to Daniel. And the message starts in um, chapter 11, verse 1, and it goes through the end of chapter 11. When we get to chapter 12, we're moving out of it. But in chapter 11, Daniel gets a revelation of history from the time of the Greeks until depending on who you're talking to, and you're talking to me, so I'm going to say through the end of time. Um, so we get the Greeks, and then we get this lots of details on the reign of the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria. These are outgrowths of the Greek Empire. Um, and when we get farther along, we are getting details about the reign of Antiochus III, who was Antiochus the Great, and then his eventual successor, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Um, and then at a certain point in those prophecies, um, conservative scholars like myself will say we have what looks to be a shift from that historical character of Antiochus IV to possibly Antichrist. So we are moving mm -hmm. beyond anything Antiochus IV would have been involved in. Um, so that takes us through the end of time, if you will, and we have the suppression of God's people. Um, Michael, who is Michael? Michael is the angelic representative of Israel. Um, he's called the Prince of Israel. He fights on behalf of God's people. Um, in, in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 32, um, there's, God makes a statement about how after the Tower of Babel, he divided the world into different territories, and he assigned those territories to angelic beings, and he kept Israel for himself. Um, so Michael somehow works with God on behalf of Israel. So that's who Michael is, and he is fighting on behalf of God's people. So chapter 12 shows us this ultimate victory and this resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, because some are resurrected to life and some are resurrected for punishment. It's the most clear picture we get in the Old Testament of resurrection. Okay, that's significant. It's very significant. The New Testament will do a whole lot more with that, but that's that's a big takeaway from Daniel 12. Okay, so speaking of the New Testament, then we see Daniel, um, the language from Daniel figuring in, um, what Jesus talks about, and especially the book of Revelation. So, um, 
I know you could do a whole talk just on this, but um, where does Daniel come in in the New Testament? Yeah, so the only place Daniel himself is mentioned is in um, Matthew, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where Jesus refers to um, when you see the abomination that desolates or the abomination of desolation, whatever your version might call it, um, run for the hills. Um, And so there are different interpretations on what Jesus was talking about. Um, If he's talking about the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 A.D., um, if he's going beyond that to eschatological times, um, it's possible that he's doing all of those things because the prophecy has often has a pattern of um, repeat fulfillment until its ultimate consummation. So it's possible that Jesus is doing all of those things. That yes, he's referring to the destruction of the temple by the Romans, but he's also looking beyond that um, to a later time that we're still waiting to see. Um, with respect to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation, remember, is apocalyptic literature. So it's using a whole lot of symbolism, um, code language that its original readers would have understood a whole lot better than we do. But, of course, it draws on imagery from Daniel as well. And Daniel is, the second half of Daniel is apocalyptic literature. So you have a, a recurrence of a lot of those images and themes um, put in some ways to different use. And I'm not a Revelation scholar, so... <laughs> I don't want to go too deep into how Revelation might be using it. <laughs> okay. All right. And so the commentary, well, the whole series that you wrote for is strongly oriented towards application. Um, what are some takeaways for the church of today? How do we apply the theology and message of Daniel? Yeah, I think the book of Daniel has two main messages. Um, and I recently did a series on the book of Daniel, and my theme for the series was take heart and stand firm. So the book intends to encourage people. It intends to encourage its audience with the sovereignty, the supremacy, the superiority of their God. Um, no matter how things look, your God is in control. And one day his kingdom will fill the earth and you will reign with him. Take heart. You can endure whatever happens. Take heart. And you can also stand firm. Um, We have the examples of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and the Jews who are in Daniel's visions in the second half of the book. They stand firm. They pay a price for it. Now, Daniel and his friends don't. They survive their ordeals. But the Jews later in the book don't. They are martyred. Many of them die for what they believe, but they stand firm. And you can, the book of Daniel says, you can stand firm because you know your God is in control. And the last pages of history have not been written. And when they are, his kingdom is the only one that will endure. So for me, those are the two big takeaways for the church. Um, It's not as easy sometimes I think for those of us in the Western church to appreciate the message of Daniel, because we are farther, for the most part, we are farther removed from the kinds of circumstances in which the book was written and happened. Um, Apocalyptic literature is the literature of oppressed people, people Mm. who they need God to intervene on a cosmic scale, because nothing else is going to fix fix the situation. They need a total upheaval and divine intervention. And for us, at least for me, you know, life isn't that bad. You know, we muddle along and some things are difficult, but we aren't a persecuted people. Um, So it's harder, I think, for us to resonate with, with a lot of what's in Daniel to the depth that people that church um, Christians around the world can. Right. Yeah. I suppose that different cultures, different people groups at different times are going to approach Daniel in different ways. I mean, if you're doing great, then you might just be all excited about the numbers and the counting and the imagery and everything. But when you're an oppressed people, it's a very different story. So So there's probably a lot of insights in there for developing political theology as well that would be interesting to pursue. Yeah, for sure. 
All righty. Well, that's a good place to end. So, um, Dr. Witter, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Okay, well, I'm Dennis Messler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Dr. Wendy Witter, um, Old Testament scholar and the author of Daniel from the uh, Story of God Bible Commentary series from Zondervan. So follow the link below to check out her book. Um, so peace to everyone.